0: Well if you would take your Bibles and turn in them to Luke chapter six. Luke chapter six we've come to a new chapter. Luke chapter 6, and we'll be looking at verses 1 to 11 this morning, so follow along as I read. On a Sabbath, while he was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. Some of the Pharisees said, why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? And Jesus answered them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those with him? And he said to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. On another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And a man was there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find a reason to accuse him. But he knew their thoughts. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come and stand here. And he rose and stood there. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life, or to destroy it. And after looking around at them, after looking around at them all, he said to them, he said to him, stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. But they were filled with fury, and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. This is the word of the living God. The Sabbath was the sign of the Mosaic Covenant with Israel. There were a number of activities forbidden on the Sabbath to allow Israel to rest and remember that God created the heavens and the earth in six days and rested on the seventh. Not because he was tired, but because he ceased working. Uh, That was described for Israel in Exodus 20 in the Ten Commandments. Then again, it's reiterated in Deuteronomy chapter five, and the Sabbath uh, reason is uh, slightly different. So while in Exodus 20, it's related to creation, in Deuteronomy five, it's related to redemption. He says that God has brought them out of slavery from Egypt, and they are to rest. And so you have these two uh, realities at play, creation and redemption. And of course, th- th- these activities that were restricted, if you had broken one of these on the Sabbath, you would incur the death penalty. And you have examples of that uh, on the Sabbath, or on, uh, in the Old Testament. But the Jews, over time, began to add to what the law of Moses stipulated what the instructions were for what you could and couldn't do. And they started to look into the minutia of what it meant to labor on the Sabbath. And so uh, in their commentary on the Old Testament and in the commentary on the commentary on the Old Testament, the, the Jewish rabbis built up just so many regulations as to what could and couldn't be done on the Sabbath, what they viewed as lawful and unlawful practices on Saturday. Here are some examples. Making two loops, you couldn't make two loops. Oh, you couldn't weave two threads. Couldn't separate two threads. Uh, tying a knot or loosening a knot. Sewing two stitches. One rabbi, however, said that it was not guilty, uh, you were not guilty if you could untie the knot with one hand. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) A woman could not look into the mirror on the Sabbath because if she saw a gray hair, she might be tempted to pluck it out and that would be labor. No, he couldn't do that on Saturday. Uh, One commentator uh, combined a lot of these together and uh, he, he says this, Traveling more than 3,000 feet from home was forbidden. But if one had, and so here's how they got uh, around some of these things. If one placed food at the 3,000-foot point before the Sabbath on Friday, the point then would be considered home since there was food there. (laughs) And then that would allow you to go another 3,000 feet from where the food was. Okay. Okay. Another ingenious way to get around their own rules was that you, you could put a piece of wood or a rope placed across the end of a narrow street or an alley, which then would constitute a doorway, and that would extend the, the region of where your house was, and you could do a number, you, there was a lot of activities you could do within your house that you couldn't do outside of your house, and so that would kind of expand the place where your house was, Okay. Uh, Now, interestingly enough, uh, even today in some major cities, there are what are called eruvs and uh, eruvims in different cities. So what these eruvs are, are basically rope or different ways to uh, cordon off the the, the city, around the city, so that uh, the Jews on the Sabbath can travel around the city, basically based on this principle of how far you can travel out. And so they will have these kind of uh, ways that they can um, rope off basically a whole city, and it's called the Aruv, where you're allowed to travel all within that that boundary. So basically on the Sabbath, you can still travel throughout the whole city as long as the Aruv is up. And actually, some cities have websites that tell you whether the Aruv is up or down, because if the Aruv goes down, if it's broken, on the Sabbath, you can't fix it on the Sabbath because that would be work. And, and so you have to have a way to know, is the Aruv up or down? And so you can go on laaruv.org or .com, I'm not sure. And, uh, and you can find out if the Aruv is up or down. And there are rabbis who in LA especially will fly in a helicopter and to see the day before if the Aruv is up or not. And make sure it is. And you're like, are you serious? Yes. D- go check it out. Uh, so these are some of the lengths. Uh, of course, maybe you've uh, been in New York City on a Saturday, and the elevators in some places will stop on every level. Stop on every level so you don't have to push the button. Uh, there are some refrigerators that have a Sabbath mode on them that you can turn it on for Sabbath. Okay? Uh, there's some other things that you, regulations about carrying items, um, Something lifted up in in a public place could only be set down in a private place and vice versa. An object tossed into the air could be caught, same hand, but if it was caught with the other hand, it would be a Sabbath violation. If a person, it's like playing catch, yeah. If a person, no juggling. If a person had reached out to pick up food when the Sabbath began, the food had to be dropped. To bring the arm back while holding the food would be to carry a burden on the Sabbath. It was forbidden to carry anything heavier than a dried fig. A tailor could not carry his needle, a scribe his pen, or a student his books. You could only carry enough ink to write two letters. Not like letters to a friend, like two letters of the alphabet. Olive and Beth. <laughs> it's like, that's what you can do. Uh, that's how much you can have. Uh, clothes could not be examined or shaken out uh, before... Uh, Of being put on because an insect might be killed in the process, which would be work. No fire could be lit or put out. Cold water could be poured into warm water, but not warm into cold. (laughs) An egg could not be cooked. um, Not even by placing it in hot sand during the summer. Couldn't buy or sell. Bathing was forbidden, lest water be splashed out and it might clean the floor on the Sabbath, which would be work. Okay, so you get the idea. Lots and lots of birds. What they did, in, in essence, was take something that God intended to be a blessing for his people, and they turned it into a burden. This is what legalism does. It, it neglects the true commands of God in his word, and it focuses on things that God has not commanded in his word. And that is the very situation that we have in our passage this morning, Jesus does two different, has two different encounters with the religious leaders on a Sabbath. In fact, that's how Luke structures it. He puts these two together. In verse one, it says, on a Sabbath. Verse six, on another Sabbath. And you'll also notice the repetition of this word lawful. It comes up three times. Verse two, What is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? Verse four, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat? Uh, Verse nine, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath? And so here's the idea. Here's the issue. What is lawful and not lawful on the Sabbath? And who gets to decide on those things? Who is the authority over the Sabbath? Is it the religious leaders that they have the authority to tell people what they can and cannot do on the Sabbath? Or is it the creator that decides who can do what on the Sabbath? These are the Sabbath showdowns. And they point to Jesus' authority. Jesus' authority. And we're gonna see two revelations about the authority of Jesus on and over the Sabbath. We'll see the declaration of Jesus' authority and then the demonstration of Jesus' authority. He's break down pretty simply, verses 1 to 5, and then the next uh, account, 6 to 11. And one happens in a, a grain field, and the other happens in a synagogue, okay? Those are the two different places. So first, let's consider the declaration of Jesus' authority in verses 1 to 5. And we see first in verses 1 and 2 that Jesus declares authority by his intentional disregard of their traditions. By his intentional disregard of their traditions, the Pharisees are like the hall monitors. You know, they're like spying on. It makes you wonder, like, how did they know that Jesus and his disciples were passing through these grain fields? Were they following them? What was going on? Uh, so what, what is really the, the infraction here? What, is ex- what exactly did Jesus and his disciples do? Well, they're walking through a field, and they pick some heads of grain. Some, some translations would say, um, uh, ears of corn but that's uh probably a a poor translation it's not like that they're shucking corn in the field but they're grabbing a a head of the grain and they're just rubbing it in their hands so that the the chaff would would fall out and then they could they could eat it and so that that's what's happening they're they're passing through pulling them off and and eating and they're like okay that's what's happening well this is a fourfold uh breach of the rabbinic law regarding the sabbath to do these things, because they would consider them to be threshing and, and, and working on the Sabbath. They're, they are harvesting in their minds, even though it's just, you know, picking up with your hand and just eating a, a few of them. This would be like if you were to go through a field and, you know, you're, it's a blueberry field or whatever, and you just pick a few off, just a handful, and you just kind of eat some, and then you go on your way. Uh, and this was actually allowed for in the law of Moses. In Deuteronomy chapter 23, In Deuteronomy 23, starting in verse 24, it says, if you go into your neighbor's vineyard, you may eat your fill of grapes, as many as you wish, but you shall not put any in your bag. If you go into your neighbor's standing grain, you may pluck ears with your hand, but you shall not put a sickle to your neighbor's standing grain. So, Here's the issue. Okay, if you're passing through and you're passing through the field and you're hungry, you can grab a few off, just like a few handfuls, and and eat them right there. But you can't put it in your pockets. You can't take them with you. You can't bring a sickle with you into your neighbor's uh, field and start hacking down stuff and taking it with you. You can't bring a chainsaw with you. You know, that's obvious. That would be stealing. But there is provision for just grabbing a few and... and, uh, having some provision along, your way, along the way. And that's exactly what Jesus and his disciples are doing. They are in complete observance of the law of Moses. They're not taking extra. They're just going along their way, and they're eating some. And it just so happens that it's a Sabbath. And that is the issue, because they had these extra laws that they deemed Jesus and his disciples to be in violation of. And that's why it says that... Their, question, their accusation, why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? Jesus, rebuke your disciples, rebuke them for what they are doing. They haven't broken God's law, they've broken the law of the Pharisees like we said, here's the danger of legalism. It it neglects what is actually commanded in the Bible and it begins to evaluate things based on traditions, preferences, things that are not commanded in the Bible. And the legalist often judges by externals, external standards. And so Jesus declares his authority by his intentional disregard of their traditions. He loves to do this. And we're gonna see it again later in the second half of uh, this section in verses six to 11. Secondly, we see Jesus declares his authority by his interpretation of scripture, by his interpretation of scripture, in verses three and four. Now, just think, before we read this, how would you have responded to the Pharisees if this was the accusation? Where would you go? Where, where would you go in scripture to show them that they're not right? Right? Well, you might go to this Deuteronomy passage and say, well, it's not a law that you can't do this on a Sabbath, and this is perfectly lawful for us to be doing. I think I would go there. Uh, or how about Exodus 20, where the, the Sabbath command is given, and just say, where in this passage, are, you know, wh- what from this passage makes you think that we're breaking the law of God? That's what I would do, but that's not what Jesus does. He does not go back to that command, which is an obvious place to go. Instead, he goes to a story about David. Why that story? And that's what's so fascinating about Jesus' response. And it also speaks to his knowledge of scripture. Jesus just is is so well versed in the scriptures that he chooses this passage to make a profound point uh, to them. Now, we'll see that in a moment, but notice how he introduces the passage he takes them to. He says to them, have you not read? Now, this is just one of, like, such an insult to the Pharisees. They are professional students of the law, of the Bible. They have it likely memorized. They could quote it for him. Have you not read? Um, I mean, this, this is like, you know, if I would have got to play with Tiger Woods, and I'm like, have you ever putted before? You know, he misses a putt uh, on the green. Have you putted before? And watch this, you know, it's like, I mean, it's just, it's just such a, a statement of, of shock. What he's really getting at is they're not acting like they've read the scriptures before. It's like you guys have never read the Bible before based on what you're saying to me right now. And so look at where he takes them. Look at verses three and four. Jesus answered them, have you not read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat and also gave it to those with him. What is this about? This is from 1 Samuel 21, 1 to 6. should turn there. You gotta see it. Now I was kind of shocked at how many people deal with this. Like I listened to some messages and see what people did with this and how few actually went to the passage and looked at what the text actually says. This is a fascinating place for Jesus to go to make his point. And I think it's easy to go wrong in our interpretation here if we're not careful. Now, here's the context. David has just begun to flee from Saul, right? David was anointed. So Saul is the first king of Israel. And really, it's, it, Israel rejects God's kingship in 1 Samuel 8. And they want a king of their own. Now, God had said that they were going to have a king, but their motives are wrong. They want a king like the other nations, and so God's like, "Okay, I'm going to grant your request and give you a king, the kind of king that you want and deserve." And here you go. Here's Saul, and they, he gives them Saul, and they they see this contrast then of Saul and later with David because Saul turns out to not be a great king, and so then in chapter sixteen, uh, chapter fifteen, Saul is rejected. Chapter sixteen. Uh, David is anointed king, but he doesn't become king yet, though he's been anointed as king. But he is, the, he is the next king. He is the rightful king, though Saul is still on the throne. So David defeats Goliath, chapter 17, and then chapters 18 to 20 is this kind of relationship of Jonathan, uh, Saul's son, and David. And Jonathan loves David. They have a great friendship, and he's like, you're going to be king. I, I recognize it. And he affirms David in this kingship. And then David is basically like, your dad is trying to kill me. And Jonathan's like, no, no, he would tell me. My dad would tell me if he was trying to kill you. I would know it. And so then basically they come up with this way to find out if Saul is really trying to kill David. And uh, and then if so, how, how Jonathan can warn David in a kind of inconspicuous way so David can still flee. And it turns out, Dave, Jonathan learns, oh yeah, my dad does want to kill David. And so then he, 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 they come up with this way, like shooting arrows. And so David knows you know, that he's supposed to flee. And that's what happens. And David leaves. And that's the end of chapter 20. David is now fleeing into the wilderness. And then chapter 21. And that's where we pick up our passage. So 1 Samuel 21, now that you're caught up, David is a fugitive. And it says this. Then David came to Nob, to Ahimelech the priest. And Ahimelech came to meet David, trembling, and said to him, Why are you alone, and no one with you? And David said to Ahimelech the priest, The king has charged me with a matter, and said to me, Let no one know anything of the matter about which I send you, and with which I have charged you. I have made an appointment with the young men for such and such a place. Now then, what do you have at hand? Give me five loaves of bread, or whatever is here. So, okay, let's just pause for a second and evaluate what's happening. So David is fleeing from Saul. And actually, we, we don't know that anyone's with him. It's not until chapter 22 that we say all these people gather to David. There may have been some people, but it actually says that David was by himself when he left in chapter 20. But David comes to the, the priest and he, he, here's what he says. I'm on a secret mission from the king. Like in other, He's saying, Saul has sent me on this secret mission. Ah, I can't tell you much about it. It's a real secret. It's classified. And uh, oh yeah, I'm by my, he's like, well, you're, why are you by yourself? Oh, my men are in such and such a town. Now, what you gotta love about this is, this phrase is not used that often, and it's one of my favorite Old Testament phrases. It's the phrase polonial Almoni," and it's this word for such and such, or like such and such a person, or so and so. It's used in Ruth chapter four of the man who's the potential redeemer for uh, for Ruth that Boaz talks to, and d- the guy doesn't even get a name. His name is Mister So and So, <laughs> Polonial Almoni. It sounds like an Italian sandwich, and. Uh, but it can be also used of places and not just people. So when it's used to a person, it's Mr. So-and-so, right? Uh, when it's used of a place, it's such-and-such a place. And so David is saying, oh yeah, I'm on this secret mission from Saul. And uh, oh yeah, my men are not with me because they're in, uh, they're in uh, such-and-such a town. You know, he doesn't even say the town's name. And so you're like, wait a minute, this sounds fishy. Like this is weird. So he says, well, give us some food, give us some, some bread. What do you have at hand? Verse three, give me five loaves of bread or whatever is here. And you're like, how is that supposed to feed all of David's men? You're just kind of thinking about these things. Verse four, and the priest answered David, I have no common bread at hand, but there is holy bread. If the young men have kept themselves from women. And David answered the priest, oh, truly women have been kept from us and oh, as always when I go on an expedition. The vessels of the young men are holy even when it is an ordinary journey. How much more today with their vessel, will their vessels be holy? So, so what, what, he, what the priest is saying is, we don't have any ordinary bread here. We just have the bread of the presence. And you're like, what is the bread of the presence? Well, in Exodus 25, God said, okay, in the tabernacle, I want you to have a table for, and, and on the table, uh, each week you're supposed to bake 12 loaves of bread. And you're to put these loaves lined up on the table, and it's to be there all week. And on the next Sabbath, it will uh, be for the priest to eat. So Leviticus tells us, um, Leviticus 24 tells us that it is only for the priest to eat, and they're to eat it on the Sabbath after it's been, uh, the, the next uh, next 12 have been baked and replaced. So every week you replace this on the Sabbath. It's possible that David comes on the Sabbath. We're not certain of that, uh, because maybe they're they're trading out the bread. But so, so this is the issue. Okay, well, we don't have any common bread for you here, but we, all we have is the bread of the presence. But, but it's, it's, you know, our, basically the priest is going, well, you have to be a priest, but you have to be consecrated as a priest. You have to be holy. Um, so are your guys holy? Like, have you guys kept yourselves from women? And David's like, oh, of course, of course. We, we would always do that. But, but oh, especially on this secret mission that we're on, of course we're, we're holy. It just sounds fishy in what David is saying. So then what happens? Verse six, so the priest gave him the holy bread for there was no bread there but the bread of the presence which is removed before Yahweh to be replaced by hot bread on the day it is taken away. And so David takes the bread and he eats the bread. Now here, just a little extra here. uh, Verse seven, now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day detained before Yahweh. His name was Doeg the Edomite the chief of Saul's herdsmen. And he just like drops in. It's like this ominous, this guy's sitting in the back and he's got like a, you know, a hat on that's like a villain hat. And he's just like, dun, dun, dun. it's like ominous music. And you don't meet this guy again until a little bit later in the story. And he tells on David. And what happens actually? Well, Saul sends men uh, and they come to these priests and he's like, hey, it was David here. And basically he kills all of these priests. He slaughters all the priests that, that David came to. Here's something else interesting. Verse 8. Then David said to Ahimelech, Then have you not here a spear or a sword at hand? For I have brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me, because the king's business required haste. And the priest said, The sword of Goliath, the Philistine, whom you struck down in the valley of Elah, behold, it is here wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you will take that, take it, for there is none but that here. And David said, There is none like it. Give it to me. I mean, Okay, David, so you're by yourself. Why are you by yourself? Oh, I'm on a secret mission from the king, but I don't have any food. It was too, too I also didn't bring any weapons either. One writer said, this is like a plumber asking to borrow the customer's, you know, pipe wrenches to do the job. You know, it's like, wait, why, why don't you have your tools with you? What's, and it just so happens that this priest has Goliath's sword there. And he's like, I'll take that. So he takes Goliath's sword. It's just a very fishy story. And I think what a lot of people fail to realize is that David is lying in this story. He's making this story up. That's not true. It's not true that Saul has sent him on a secret mission. No, Saul is trying to kill him. And David is fleeing for his life. Not only that, but there's something else. If you zoom out and just like really zoom out of scripture, David is entering into the wilderness, just like Israel was in the wilderness, tempted in the wilderness, tried, refined by God. What was one of their early trials in the wilderness? Manna. Bread. David here goes into the wilderness, and what is one of the first trials he has to deal with? Bread. And David is going to have two other trials as well. All three of them he will fail in some way. And when we study Luke chapter 4, remember. Jesus goes into the wilderness to be tempted how many times? Three times. And what does the first one have to deal with? Bread. Make for yourself bread, Jesus, from these stones. And so there is kind of a recapitulation. There is this connection between Jesus, the greater David, and David. And so what do we find? Well, David is being shady. He's being shady in 1 Samuel 21. So why does Jesus go there? Why why does he do that? And not only that, Jesus says that it was not lawful for David to eat this. So he's broken the law by Jesus' own estimation. Now, usually what people will say about this passage, and I listen to a lot of people, uh, they'll say something like this. Well, the law... Forbid this to happen, but because David was such a great need, of course the law wouldn't uh, keep someone from eating, and so there was kind of a built-in exception for this, and so he could eat the bread, and it was it was okay, even though it wasn't lawful for him to eat, because God wasn't going to have him to starve. Now. Okay, that might be true. That might be that if you, if you really want to make a case in the text that, yes, it is for the priests, but it doesn't say anything about them giving up their right to give it. That's possible, but that's just not explicit in the text. Jesus doesn't actually say that. And so I'm a little bit more skeptical of that being the point that Jesus is trying to make, that, hey, listen, you know, he, he allowed for this to happen. He allowed for David to break the law. I actually think the point is that David didn't obey here. David wasn't trusting God to provide for him. And, but then why go here? Why point this out? I think this is what Jesus is doing. I think Jesus is saying, you guys are accusing me of breaking the law. But it's not the law of God. It's your traditions. That's what you're saying I've broken. But we haven't broken God's law. But haven't you read about David, whom you guys love, how when he was fleeing from Saul, he went in and told this shady story and he ate the bread of the presence, which was not lawful for him to do, and actually broke God's law? Haven't you guys read about that? Don't you remember that? And then he has the clincher. The son of man is Lord of the Sabbath. I think what he's saying is this. Hey, you guys love David. David's great. David is the king who the covenant was given to. But don't you realize, David actually broke the law of God. And he did it while Saul was chasing him. And here's the big, the big issue I think Jesus is trying to get at. I've obeyed the law of God at every point. I was in the wilderness and I didn't create bread for myself. I faced all three temptations and I didn't sin. I'm the greater David. I am the king. The king is standing in your presence and you're accusing me of breaking your laws. I haven't broken any of them. And and David, who I am the greater David, he actually did break the law, but I'm here and I haven't broken the law. I'm the one who has authority over the Sabbath. I gave the Sabbath. I am the Lord of the Sabbath. One greater than David is here. You guys are acting like Saul who was trying to kill the rightful king of Israel because you want to kill me, the rightful king of Israel, the true David. I think that's his point. I think that's his big point. You guys are all upset about me breaking your traditions You guys love David, but but even David broke the law. I'm the greater David. I have not broken the law. You guys are like Saul. You guys are persecuting the true king. You hate me. And then he says, the son of man is Lord of the Sabbath. What, What does this mean? Well, Jesus is declaring by his authority, by his indisputable claim of deity, the son of man is Lord of the Sabbath. This would have been such a shocking claim for Jesus to make. Exodus 20, verse 8, interestingly enough, it's one of the longer commands in the Ten Commandments about the Sabbath. Most of them are are relatively short. But in Exodus 20, verse 8, it says, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to Yahweh your God. On it, you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days, Yahweh made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, Yahweh blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Here was the point. God had told Israel, I want you to do your profession, do your vocation for six days. And whatever you get accomplished that week, I want you to rest then on the seventh. And I want you to consider that God made all of the universe in six days. You made that chair, God made the universe. Rest, remember that. And then do it again. Go to work again, you know, write some code at work. And then you realize on the seventh day, God made the entire universe. And just keep doing that. Keep reminding yourself of the creator and who he is and his covenant with you. And what Jesus is saying here. Is I am the Lord of the Sabbath. He's saying, I'm the creator. I am the who has authority over the Sabbath. It is God who established this pattern for Israel. Work 6, rest 1. To point to his being the creator and then later his being the redeemer. He's saying, you don't get to judge me as to what is lawful on the Sabbath. I'm the one who says what's lawful on the Sabbath. I created the Sabbath. And so he's challenging their authority. What was the purpose of the Sabbath? Well, in a way, it was to say to Israel, after God creates the, six, uh, the the earth in six days and he rests on the seventh, he, he ceases his work and he sanctifies it. And later, God will also, or, or in, the, in the law of Moses, he'll give them not only uh, a once a week rest, but then he'll give them other um, festivals and holidays and uh, every seven years the land is to rest and every 50 years there is to be a jubilee of rest all these ways to tell Israel, I am sovereign over time. I own all your time. I own every second of your life. And I get to determine and be authoritative over every second of your life. That's what you need to remember in this command. God is the ruler over all of your life. And so if Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath, then he is the Lord of all time. And so, though we are not uh, in the new covenant under the Sabbath regulation as Israel was, the principle and application still stands that God is sovereign over all of your life. It's been said often, even though it's a little bit of a dated statement, you know, show me your checkbook and your calendar and I'll tell you, Who's Lord of your life, right? I'll tell you what your priorities are. Now, I still have a checkbook, but you know, we don't write as many checks maybe as we used to. Uh, but you get the idea. Show me where you invest your money and where you invest your time with your calendar and it will reveal a lot about you. Israel was to have this way to teach them that God was sovereign over their lives. And so this was the purpose to show them the authority of God. And Jesus is saying, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. I have complete authority over your lives. And so he seeks to demonstrate his authority by intentionally disregarding their traditions, by his interpretation of scripture to show that he's greater than David, he hasn't broken the law, and and he is the one who they are trying to kill, like Saul. And that he is deity. Deity. He is God, a very God, the Lord of the Sabbath, whom they must submit to. He doesn't submit to their man-made rules. They submit to his divine law. And so this is the declaration of Jesus' authority. It's just good for us to think, is God sovereign over my life? Does he dictate everything? Do I look to him and look to the lordship of Christ and say, Lord, whatever you want for my life, that is what I must do. Lord, what do you want for my time? What do you want for my days? Monday to Sunday, how do you want me to live my life? You own it all, God. Everything is under your sovereign control. You made all things. You rule all time. You rule every moment of my life. Is that true of us increasingly as followers of Christ? Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath and of every day. That's the declaration of Jesus' authority. Notice, secondly, the demonstration of Jesus' authority. Verses 6 to 11. Once again, he links it to another Sabbath. And now, instead of being in the field, Jesus is in the synagogue and he's teaching. He entered the synagogue and was teaching, and a man was there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find a reason to accuse him. Here we see Jesus exposing the wicked motives of these unbelievers. Jesus, as he teaches, has a man in the crowd with a withered hand. Actually, a withered right hand. See, Luke is the only one that tells us it was his right hand. And we don't know exactly why that is. Luke is a doctor, so maybe this took interest to Luke. Maybe Luke, you know, like, uh, I remember having surgery and they wrote on my shoulder, you know, something t- with a sharpie uh, and, you know, to make sure that they did the surgery on the right arm. <laughs> and, uh, and so they'll draw on you and stuff to make sure. And Luke's like, okay, it's the right one. It's the right one. You yeah. uh, know, but I don't know why he says the right one, but he, he highlights that for us. And so this man is, is present with them. And the, the Pharisees know that as well. Luke highlights that because the issue for them was not what Jesus was saying, but whether they could trap Jesus. So the Word of God is being taught. I mean, Jesus is preaching. Like, sometimes people share a sermon with you. They're like, oh, you got to hear this message. You got to listen to this, this pastor or whatever. This is a great encouraging message. And, you you know, you're like, okay. Like, what if someone's like, hey, you got to hear this message, this podcast. It's Jesus. It's Jesus, you know, preaching. And you're like, what? (laughs) And it is Jesus, you know. And and so Jesus is here in the synagogue and he's teaching the word of God. It is the capital W word of God teaching the lowercase word of God. And what are they doing? They're watching this withered man and they're going, ooh, here's an opportunity. Do you think he'll heal him so that we have some dirt on him? We, have, we, can, we can trap him here. That is what they're thinking. That's their motives. It makes us think, how do, we hear the word of, how do you hear the word of God? Is it an opportunity for you to feast on the scriptures? Is it an opportunity for you to examine your heart and see where change is needed? Is it an opportunity for you to see and savor Jesus Christ yet again? I hope it is. And then it's not you know counting the ceiling tiles or, you know, uh, thinking about nitpicking little things. These men are totally distracted from the message because of their warped motives. They cannot hear the words of Christ. They're too focused on their own agenda. And so he exposes their wicked motives in this way, Luke does. and then we have this exposure of them being without mercy verses 8 to 10. Jesus is gonna give them a kind of a pop quiz. Verse 8 says, but he knew their thoughts and he said to the man with the withered hand, come and stand here. And he rose and stood there. He knows their thoughts. The word of God exposes hearts, Hebrews 4.13. It lays us open and bare before the, the eyes of him to whom we have to give an account. And here is Jesus who knows the hearts. He is the word of God and he knows hearts and he's speaking the word of God which exposes hearts. And he exposes their lack of mercy here. And he does it by placing this man in front of them. who I mean, he knows they're thinking about they're, they're trying to entrap him. And so he says, I mean, just imagine this, it, it, this man, maybe it's slightly embarrassed by his condition, but he's there in the synagogue because he so wants to see Jesus and hear him. And Jesus calls this man out. And he says, come up, come up here, come here. You're, you're going to be a visual aid for me. This, what, what's going on? So, I mean, you got to listen to Jesus. So he comes forward and he's standing in front of them all. And he's, in, and the Pharisees are like, oh yeah, this is exactly what we thought he would do. It's like Jesus calls a press conference for this healing. Now, here's what you have to know, again, about the law of God. Uh, Jesus does not have to heal this man in public on this day. He could have waited till the next day, but he deliberately chooses to do it here and now to prove a point. Now, their law said that if someone was about to die, you could stabilize them. Or if a woman was about to give birth, you could uh, give birth, uh, help her to give birth. Uh, If a child needed to be circumcised, you could circumcise them. But beyond those things, if someone had another medical issue, they had to wait until Sunday. They had to wait till the next day. You couldn't do it on the Sabbath. In, In fact, in Luke chapter 13, verse 14, we read, but the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, there are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed and not on the Sabbath day. Here's someone who comes to, to receive healing and is saying, hey, there's, you, you have six other days in the week. Come back. Now, Jesus doesn't want to make this man wait when he can do good. And I love how Jesus intentionally loves to break their laws, all their extras, He plucks green with his disciples and eats on the Sabbath. He doesn't wash like the Pharisees do. In John 9, the man who's born blind, he spits on the ground and he makes a little mud and puts it on the guys. You're like, why does he do that? Like, what a weird thing. But one of their laws was that you couldn't spit on the ground because it would make mud and begin the work process of making bricks and making a house. And so it's almost like Jesus is like, you know what? You know what I think about your tradition? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and he makes this mud to, to put on his, the man's eyes. He does the miracle right in front of their face. It reminds me of Martin Luther, the reformer, who received a, what was called a papal bull from the pope, uh, that he needed to recant his, some of his views about justification, and as he's clarifying his views on these things, in contrast to the workspace system of the Roman Catholic Church, and He gets a crowd together and he he, he brings them all together and he has the papal bull and then he starts a fire and he throws it into the fire just to show I defy the Pope. Your tradition means nothing to me is what Jesus is saying. And so he places this man in front of the crowd and he asks them a question. And it's a simple question. After all, It's a Sabbath question, and they are experts in the Sabbath. So, with the man there, verse nine, Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? To save life or destroy it? Like we said, it was permitted to do medicine if you were saving a life, but you couldn't just do normal medicine. Now Jesus' question is good on many levels. The word lawful comes up again. And so here's this issue of authority. Who gets to determine what's lawful or not? God or man? And of course it's lawful to do good to someone and not harm them on the Sabbath. And of course it's lawful to save life and not to destroy it on the Sabbath. One writer said the Sabbath for Jesus is a day of freedom, a a day of release from evil and harm, a day to do what is good and to deliver people from the power of evil. In fact, the scriptures will say, if it's within your power to do good and you fail to do it, that's evil. And so Jesus says, I have the power to heal this man and here he is before me. Would it not be evil for me to fail to heal this man when I can do it? Why wait? Now, it's interesting that Jesus says the second one the way he does. Who would destroy someone's life on the Sabbath? They would. <laughs> They're the ones who are trying to destroy him. To give life or to destroy life. They want to destroy Jesus. They're starting to plot already how they might destroy him. And so this is, this is right at them you guys are so upset that I'm about to heal this man when you are harboring in your hearts murder to kill the son of man. They're completely without mercy. This man is just a pawn in their game. Interestingly enough, it was on a Sabbath in Jesus' hometown of Nazareth that they did try to destroy him, driving him out, trying to push him off the cliff. Now, at this point, Jesus lets this question hang in the air. You know, sometimes you lead a discussion and you throw out a question. And you're, there's kind of this, as you lead a public discussion, you know, how long do I let this question hang in the air and let the awkward silence set in before I say something, interject, or change the question? I just just feel like this is a good long pause. Look at verse 10. And after looking around at them, after looking around at them all, he said to them, I mean, Jesus just starts staring them down, looking into each other's eyes, the flaming fires of Jesus piercing into their hearts. It actually says in Mark, in Mark's account of this, in Mark 3, he was angry with them. He was angry. Oh, he's very compassionate to this man with a withered hand, but to these religious leaders who are deceiving the people to hell with a false message, with a false gospel, with a gospel of try harder, do better, follow our rules. He is angry, righteous indignation, and he stares them down. He lets it get awkward, I think. Verse 10, after looking around at them, knowing their hearts, he said to them, said to him, the man, stretch out your hand, You gotta love this. What is the one thing this man cannot do? (laughs) Stretch out his hand. Jesus, tell me to do something. I mean, tell me to jump, hop on one leg, you know. I can't, I can't do this. That's not what the man says though. What does this man do? And he did so and his hand was restored. Amazing. This is such a picture of regeneration. God calls the sinner, repent, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. How can they do that? They love their sin. They're enslaved to sin. They're dead in trespasses and sins. What would make them want to leave their sin that they love and cling to Christ in faith, whom they don't value and treasure? How could that possibly happen? The command goes out, stretch out your arm, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet this man does it. Because... Jesus creates in him that which he commands. He creates the regeneration of this man's arm in that instant. J.C. Rowell says he had enough faith, or he, he had faith enough to believe that he who bade him stretch forth his hand was not mocking him and ought to be obeyed. And so it is. For those whom Jesus has not only died for their sins, but he's purchased their faith, at some point in their lives, The call goes out, repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And they do it. Their own volition. They believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and they repent of their sin. And how did that happen? Those who are believing in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ have been born again. 1 John 5, 1. God has caused regeneration and so they believe. What a picture. What a picture of this man in faith, believing the Lord Jesus. Finally, we see the exposure of the, their wrathful, murderous hearts in verse 11. But they were filled with fury and disgust with one another what they might do to Jesus. Jesus is angry with them, with righteous indignation. They are irrationally anger, anger, angered at Jesus. That's uh, this idea of them being filled with anger. They are irrational. The other gospels tell us that they even started to partner with the Herodians, a group that they would normally despise and have nothing to do with. This is like the Democrats and the Republicans agreeing to work together on something. (laughs) This This is so contrary, but what are they united in doing? Plotting to kill Jesus. They both want him dead. Now, there's such an irony in what Jesus does as he sets this up. Is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath or to do harm, to save or to destroy? Here's how perfect this is. If they, what Jesus does here doesn't actually break the Sabbath. The actual Sabbath. Like, what does he do? Jesus speaks to this man. Stretch out your hand. Uh, well, how is that working, right? And what does the man do? I mean, how is that working on the Sabbath? So they don't actually break the set, sab- which is amazing because that's what they want to get him on. He heals the man. Now they are in a dilemma. Now they can either say he didn't work on the Sabbath, which blows their whole case. They want him to have broken their law and worked so that they can say, ah, you broke the Sabbath. So they can say, well, okay, it wasn't a work because that's one option. Or they can say, he did do a work, but then what are they saying? Jesus miraculously healed this man and authenticated who he is and his message because now this prophet has been authenticated to be who he says he is because this is a sign that points to that. So either you say, you did work, but now we have a problem because we're not believing in you and you've been authenticated. Or you say, you didn't do a work and your whole thing is shot. So it's like, heads I win, tails you lose. is what Jesus sets them up for. (laughs) They can't win in this scenario. Jesus never broke the law of God. He always fulfilled it and obeyed it on our behalf. He merely speaks a word. Ryle says this, what excessive importance hypocrites attach to trifles. What excessive importance hypocrites attach to trifles. Here's the issue, Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. He's the creator of all things. He has authority over all things. All time and its use is determined by him. The only question for us is whether you acknowledge his lordship or whether it angers you. Spurgeon, I just just gotta tell, Spurgeon once, Spurgeon really hated legalism and uh, adding laws to the scriptures that weren't there. And of course, many of you know, Spurgeon uh, enjoyed to smoke a cigar from time to time, (laughs) which offended some. And uh, he once invited Dwight Pentecost to come and preach, but Pentecost wanted to hear Spurgeon as well. So what they decided to do was to have a joint service where Pentecost would preach first, and give kind of the uh, explanation of the passage, and then Spurgeon would get up and give the exhortation, the application. And so uh, Pentecost gets up, he preaches, and whatever they were preaching on, he decided to use as an application uh, to rail against smoking. (laughs) And to to say basically that smoking was a sin in, in any case. And so the congregation, they knew their pastor, They knew he smoked cigars, and he had a clear conscience about it. And so Spurgeon gets up to take his turn, and they're all thinking, this is so awkward. What is he going to say? And Spurgeon didn't like to, you know, pass by opportunities and ignore something. So he gets up, Spurgeon does, and he says this, quote, notwithstanding what Dr. Pentecost said, I intend to smoke a cigar to the glory of God before I go to bed tonight. If anyone can show me in the Bible, thou shalt not smoke, I am ready to keep it. I find 10 commandments, and it is as as much as I can do to keep them. I have no desire to make them 11 or 12. (laughs) Now, leave aside your preference for smoking or not smoking. I don't uh, know of any of us that smoke, but, uh, but, but the point he was trying to make was, this this is not a law of God. Okay? This is a preference. This is something that maybe is a wisdom issue, but it's not in the Bible. It's like it's like alcohol. Uh Jesus didn't make grape juice, right? He he made wine. And yet uh, I don't drink wine, uh, so I'm not trying to make an argument why, you know, I, I should be allowed to drink wine, but I think it's permissible. Paul said that elders mo- can't be given too much wine. He didn't say they cannot drink wine. And so here, once again, this steps on our toes because we have our own little things that we go, well, this, this should be a, a law of God, but it, it's not a law of God. It's a wisdom issue. It is, there's other factors, yes, that we need to carefully walk through, but this is the very issue that was happening in Jesus' day. They were elevating these things. And what Spurgeon was simply trying to say is we have to keep the law of God clear in our minds and these other things that are preference issues, we must keep in those categories. Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. The question is, will we submit to him or will we not? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word to us. Thank you for the scriptures. Thank you for the freeing nature of the new covenant frees us from the burdensome, nature of of man-made religion, of seeking to earn our way to you by law-keeping. We thank you for the liberation from that, Lord. You said, come to me, all you who are burdened and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, for I am humble and gentle, and you'll find rest for your souls. Help us to prize your law, to love your law, Oh, how I love your law, Lord, because we love you, because from the heart we want to obey you, because your law has been written on our hearts and help us to to, to not elevate our preferences to the level of scripture, but to love what is truly your law. In Jesus' name, amen.